decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. The text is taken from Revelation 2, verse um, 8 to 11. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, uh, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I told you last week when we started these, uh, these messages to the churches um, that what I want to do is establish kind of why we're going to push through this. I struggled with this for quite a while as far as how we were going to break these down. I actually contemplated pushing through all seven messages at one time. Um, but in the end, I've decided to take each each one of them distinctly because I think there's a lot of benefits uh, to this and ultimately we believe that, uh, that there's many of you that claim to be Christians that have struggled for many years trying to find out what God's will is for your life. In other words, I can tell you as a counselor for 20 years that it's very common um, for people to come in and to tell me that they can hold the Christian faith for many years perhaps at times and then they can get to a crisis point they have a, a husband or wife leave they have a child that rebels they get a terminal cancer diagnosis and then it seems like everything falls apart and they really don't know how to uh, to figure out what God would have them to do well in these seven messages what you see is a, a very concise packet of information dispersed to a church in these seven cities. We've seen that all seven of these cities uh, were located along a mail route, a historical mail route in the Roman Empire, and it was a short distance from the island of Patmos to the first city of Ephesus, which is the largest of the seven cities. And when you think of Jesus writing a message to a church, you, you think of something like this. You think of setting where you have a group of people that probably met in some sort of a building or perhaps several buildings. 
Um, but when you really look at a church, the, the technical term for a church, ecclesia, was a compound term, and it just meant the called out ones. In that sense, you're the church. So when, when Jesus writes to the church, he's really writing to men and women just like you. He's writing to individuals that were living in historical circumstances that needed instruction just like you do. And as this instruction comes, I think it, it, it bears, uh, you know, it's, it's worthy of our consideration to slow it down and to see just how it was he spoke to people. Because I think, like I said earlier, right, that there's several of these circumstances that kind of line up uh, with many of our lives. And so in that sense, we're going to see a lot of natural application that comes from this. But our greatest concern is that it seems like many Christians and the church in general in the United States is kind of losing, losing traction. It seems about 1% per year people are defecting from the church. They're coming to a point that they don't believe it works for them anymore. They don't look to the church for a source of truth anymore. And obviously there's a myriad of factors that go into that. But in the end, I think it boils down to where you go. When things break down and you need instruction, when you need to know something to do, you need to know how to figure things out, where do you go? Well, the church has always been that source. Throughout its history, it's been that source. And I think some things happen. We believe that as a church. Some things have to happen if that's going to change. And I think, for the most part, it needs to change from us as individuals onto a corporate setting. I don't think there's no amount of money, there's no schools anywhere that can just kind of prepare enough people and push them into the church and infuse them into the church and then it's going to get better. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen if it changes at all because you change. And as you change as individuals, the church will change too. And so this morning we're going to take a look at this this message to Smyrna. And I told you last week that the the structure of the of these messages is very obvious when you begin to look at it and, and study it. There's actually six different parts to it. Um, each message starts with Jesus disclosing some character or aspect of his identity and his character to the church. He's reminding them of some something about who he is. And then the second thing is that he tells them, he, he gives each of them a keep doing list and then he gives them a stop doing list. The keep doing list is the positive things that he knew firsthand that they were doing right. The stop doing list are the things that he knew that they were doing wrong. Now, to two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he didn't have anything bad to say. And just like some of you in your lives, if Jesus spent a week with you, he wouldn't picket some things. To Laodicea, he, the last of the seven messages, he doesn't have anything good to say. And just like that church, there's some of us that if Jesus was to spend a week with us, we would learn that there's a lot of stuff we need to change. There's not a lot that we have to build from. We actually need to do a major overhaul. And so the diversity of this and the latitude, the spectrum in which you see these messages, I think is very interesting. So you, get, you see the identity of Jesus, the character that he exposes to them, that he wants to remind them of, to keep doing this, to stop doing this. Then he gives them a bit of corrective instruction. Each church has this kind of parcel in it. And then he gives them a warning. And then he leaves each message with a promise. And so we're going to launch into that this morning. And I want to start with this, the character of Jesus that's exposed here. In verse 8, 
It said, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Well, in that little sentence, you have two parts of the, the character of Jesus. But what I want you to get into the habit of doing as we move through this is ask yourself, why would he tell him that? Number one, what are those character traits that are coming out and why are they pertinent? Why are they relevant to what they're about to go through? And I, I think you see two of them here in the, the character of Jesus. The, the first is his authority and power. And again, the beginning of verse 8, it says the words of the first and the last. And here in the original language, it's not the Alpha and the Omega. He's not, that oftentimes was alluded to in Greek because the Alpha was the beginning and the Omega at the end. Um, but he uses different terms here. He literally says, I'm the first and the last. And I believe that, that what he's getting at is a, an understanding of his authority and power. He's saying, basically, there, there was nothing before me. And there's a compass of my, a scope of my involvement in this world, and there's nothing after me. And so it really gets at it, and this reminds us a lot of what the writer to Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 12, in uh, verse 1 to 2. There it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there you have the, what they call the roll call of faith in Hebrews 12. You have all this amazing articulation of men and women that lived in he says in, verse, uh, in chapter 11 that the world was not worthy of them. They were, they were beyond good in the world. And some of us have had parents like that. Some of us have had teachers or coaches like that. And we, we know in our life is touched with that kind of a person. But he starts in that, that first verse of, of Hebrews 12 and he says, you're surrounded with a whole group of people just like that. Your life is like a theater, a theater the term theatron. Um, we get our word theater from it. And he says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, and here it is, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if you've ever been on an adventure where, say, you're walking on, a, on, a, on an edge, just a, a narrow little ledge, and everyone's walking in single file. You can understand the location in the line because you have someone in front of you and you have someone behind you because those positions are the most important positions. Everybody else is kind of able to, to just follow after, and you, you, you're kind of secure in the middle of that. And that's what these writers are saying. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the first and the last. And so the first aspect of his character is that my, the scope of my involvement, the scope of my authority encompasses you entirely. It's in front of you and it's behind you. You don't have to worry about it. Now the second part of his character that is revealed here is the, his victory over death. And we see that in verse 8 when he says, I'm the one who died and who came to life. And... This has particular relevance based upon what he's going to say in the balance of this message. But it reminds us of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54 and 55 when he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, mor and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass this, uh, the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, the fact that Jesus... Had, 
had been given over to death, to death. Now, push your mind through a couple of things, those of you that are Christians this morning. Think of the night before he was crucified. He, he sat in the garden, and it's, it says that he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and he prays to his father three times, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but it's not mine, but your will be done. And so he surrenders three times. He expresses something that happens inside of every normal, rational human heart. You come to a point of great trial, and you wish it would just go away. Jesus shows us in his humanity that's what he asks. Three times he says, if it's possible, I don't want to have to go through this, but in the end, I surrender. I really, I'm able to give this over to you. And then he dies, and just like he said, he's raised on the third day, and there's a victory over death that Christianity celebrates. Death is not the end. So whether you're a Christian or not in this room this morning or listening, the there's something in this that Jesus is saying that death is not the end. I'm the one who died, but I'm alive again. And so these are the pertinent elements that kind of converge in this identity. And I'm going to show you a little bit more about why he, I think, points to those as we go through this. Uh, so let's move to the second main point. We saw first the character of Jesus. And it's, the second point is the keep doing list, the keep doing part of it. When he, he looks at he says, I know, in this word for knowledge, is, is not particularly, it's, it's not significant in the sense he just says, well, I, I, I've seen, I've experienced. But the grammar in it's really significant because it's a, it's a tense, what they call a, a perfect tense in the, in the original language, which meant it was the occurrence of something in the past with an abiding result in the present. And so this, this is a deep experiential knowledge that Jesus is referring to here, and he pulls these things out in verse 9. He says, I, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is the first time we, we hear this. We're going to hear it throughout the letter several times. What does that mean, a synagogue of Satan? Did they actually have an upside-down cross in there? Did they have a satanic star in there? Was there people wearing long black robes in there? Well, you, you, you need to kind of put yourself in the context. I told you earlier, I, I believe the best dating of the book is probably around 65 to 67 A.D. And so when you go back 30, 35 years, when Jesus is hanging on a cross right before he dies or at the point of his death, Several things happened. In Matthew's account, it says rocks broke open and people came out of the tombs. But one of the most significant things that most of the writers in the, in the Gospels record is that the temple, the curtain in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holy place, the holy of holies was a place that the high priest was the only one that went in there once a year. And the curtain between that place it was, over the years, the Jews kept adding to it. And they said by the first century, that curtain was over a foot thick. They would add layers of gold and special fabric to it. But one of the things that happened when Jesus died is that curtain was split from the very top of it to the bottom of it, which was significant because Jesus said, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you come to me, you have access to the Father. Now, I want you to think for a moment what the Jews did. Probably no one was in there at the moment that the curtain was torn into, so someone discovered it later. So when they went in, what did they do? They sewed it back together. 
They put it back together and they pretended like it hadn't been torn. Now, each of those synagogues that rejected Jesus, it was the Jews that we looked in the beginning, they hated Jesus. That, that, that leadership among the Jews, they plotted to kill Jesus. They paid 30 pieces of silver to Judas to betray him. They took him and arrested him. They had an illegal trial. Then they coerced Pilate to have him crucified. And they mocked him when he hung on the tree, when he hung on the cross. But then the, what did they do with this curtain? They, sung it, they sewed it back up. And what did they do with their synagogues? They kept acting as if the Messiah hadn't come. Now, the reason I'm belaboring this is that some of your ideas of the end, for some of you, they're predicated on this idea that the Jews are going to get the Temple Mount back someday. And you've heard about this. There's a lot of, that's written. I, I, I don't know if somebody prayed, played some sort of a prank on me, but I, I get this crazy email every week since I started this series, and it's just got some insane stuff in it. I'll show you some of it someday. But it, it, at some point, some of you are believing that the Jews are going to get the temple mount back, they're going to reconstruct the temple, and they're going to start the temple sacrifice again. And you think that somehow that's going to be honoring to God? But isn't that, if you think through it, isn't that just a persistence in their rejection of Jesus? That they're able to say, we, we don't have a sacrifice, so we have to keep killing these bulls. This daily sacrifice is, is what keeps us right with God. And a whole system is built on them continuing to do what they were doing in the first century. And Jesus just says here, they've become a synagogue of Satan. They rejected me and they continue to mislead people to believe that the Messiah hasn't come. He's going to come one day, but he hasn't come yet. And in the meantime, they're using the truth to, to, to actually dissuade people, to get them out of the way of the truth and the, into this corrupt system now. And we're, you're going to see this over and over throughout it, but... Uh, we, we have here in this keep doing list this designation of these synagogues of Satan. And what they were is Jewish synagogues that were, they were viable synagogues before Jesus came and died. But afterwards, they misled people. Now, the things that he says here that are commendations, there are two of them. The first, he refers to their faithfulness in the midst of difficult circumstances. In verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. The term for tribulation just means adversity. You know, difficulty that's coming on you externally. And he says, and your poverty, but you really are rich. And so Jesus says, look, I've seen it. I know what you're going through. I know the day-to-day -day struggles that you're going through. And he commends them. He commends them for the fact that they had persisted in their faith in the midst of that. The second thing he commends them for is their faithfulness in the midst of slander. Now, you might look at this initially and say, but that's not that big of a deal. I have people slander me all the time. And I, I, I know that some of you do. And some of you deserve it. But some of you don't. And it, it, in verse 9, and it says, The slander of those who say that they are Jews, and they're not. Now, this idea carries something with it, I think. These are people that the claim to be something that they're not. And what I think he's getting at is people, they know how you think. They know what you hold to. They know the stands that you take. And it's there that their slander is cutting you. See, this, this isn't the person that barely knows you. This isn't the person that you, you, know, you just landed in the biology class you know, at DU together or CU. This is someone that really really knows you. And they're slandering you at the base. 
of your belief system. He says, I, I, I've seen it. Jesus is saying, I, I, I know that. I, I see this affliction that's coming upon you by the circumstances that you're in, and I, I, I see what people are saying about you. I, I know them both. Now, this, again, draws really close to what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10. And listen to what he said in verse 32 and 33. Again, this is Hebrews 10. He says, I want you to recall the former days. And so it's almost as if he's he's a wise old man and you're looking at a timeline. Here's the beginning of your life and here's the end of it. And it's like he's putting his hands gently on your head and he says, "I, I want you to look back. And he said, I, I wanted you to consider the former days after you were enlightened. Now, he, he's basically focusing your mind's eye on the time right after you came to Jesus, right after you took the gospel deep into your heart. And he, he said, I want you to remember what that was like a minute. And for some of you, you're thinking back 20, 30 years. For some of you, you still have not really believe the gospel. For some of you, perhaps it's only a few months, but he says, I want you to recall, and I want you to go back, and I want you to think of the time right after you were enlightened. And this is what he says. He said, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then verse 33, he says, sometimes, and now he's going to tell you a couple of different sources of it. He said, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction." and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So first he say, the suffering that you went through, sometimes you were exposed to reproaches and tribulation, or reproach and affliction. Reproach were the things that people said about you. And he doesn't say maybe this, you can think of this. He's saying right after you began to believe, people started saying some things about you. And he says that was a source of difficulty. And sometimes it was affliction. And that's not what they say about you. That's what they do. Those are the things that they actually do to you. And he said another source of it is when other people went through it and you stood with them because they were treated the same way as you. You didn't just let them stand alone. And so these, this keep doing list is, is grounded in the things that they were suffering externally and it was the things that they were suffering based upon the things that people were saying. Now, the, that yields then this next part, the third part of the structure is the stop doing list, which are the negative things. And as I said earlier, there's nothing in this list for Smyrna. There isn't for Philadelphia either. And that's not saying these people were sinlessly perfect. It's just saying that he doesn't bring anything out. He just is willing to say... You're, you're really a faithful person. You become a faithful woman, a faithful man in the city in which you're living in. He doesn't have anything negative to say. And, and that brings into this fourth part of the structure uh, that he follows through with all seven. He gives them this corrective prescription. And so in spite of him not rebuking them or bringing them to, calling them to task over something, he's got this corrective prescription. And there's two parts to it. And it's pretty simple. The first part, he says, don't fear. Don't allow fear to take over, take you over. Now, it says in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. And I want you to think for a moment, would you really want to know what the next six months are going to be like for you? Would you? Would you really 
want Jesus to say, let, let me show you with unbelievable precision. I'm going to show it like a film. I just want you to sit down and turn on your DVR and watch what's going to happen to you. I don't know how many of us would want that. Because there's some of you in this room that you're going to lose loved ones. For some of you in this room, you're, you're, you're going to realize that you've got some ugly cancer inside of you. For some of you, you're going to find out your relationships are not at all as strong as they were. On the other hand, some of you are going to get married. Some of you are going to find out you're pregnant. Some of you are going to, you're, you're going to walk out and somebody bashed your car and drove away. But what is it that you're going to face? See, the fact is, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the first, when he first started opening his mouth in front of the public, he said, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. And see, some of us act like we do. But when it comes right down, push come to shove, I don't know how many of us would really want to know. Now, maybe some of you are hedged the stock market and you wish you could just kind of make sure that you could bet. I, I would bet the Broncos are really good in the Super Bowl this year. Maybe, I don't, but I could be wrong. But how many of us really do know what will suffer? But he just leaves it there. He says, don't let fear overtake you. Don't be afraid. Now, what does that look like? I think only being human, all of us deal with fear. I, I, yesterday I was riding my bike and someone actually clipped me with their mirror. And, a, and didn't even do the right thing, just drove off. And a woman behind her pulled over to find out if, if I was okay. But there was, a, there was a moment in which fear overtook me. There was a moment, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? It was just like I was getting guided off the road. And, and suddenly, you can be in fear and then out of fear. I don't think what he's talking about that. I don't think he's talking about being startled. I don't think he's talking about something coming over and you're, and you're pregnant and you think there's something wrong perhaps with your child. I think all of us have that. He's talking about someone that surrenders to fear. He's talking about something that is like a cancer now and it gets into your thinking and you can scarcely think about anything without fear in the middle of it. See, this is, this is humanity he's speaking to. He said, don't be afraid. Now, the second thing he told him, he said, be faithful. And I think that there's a coordinate to this. I think, I, I think that it, it, it's almost like light and darkness. It's almost like good and evil that's at work here. He says, be faithful. And then he says it unto death. A lot of them are not going to die, but some of them are going to die in what he's telling them to do. And so he's, he's, he's to some degree, he's saying, don't surrender to the fear, but keep focusing on being faithful. Now, this, part, this is the part that I, it bothers me the most that you can't read these words that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. They're taken from, from Franklin D. Roosevelt in his inaugural address in 1933. He, he, he he made a mention of something that all of you have probably heard it when he, he said, we don't have anything to fear but fear itself. This is where that came from. And I want, to listen, I want you to listen to some of what went around this because I, I think he understood this. This is what he said. Again, this is the, his, taken from his inaugural address of 1933. He says, I am certain my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impel. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. 
nor we uh, nor need excuse me nor need we uh, shrink from honesty facing conditions in our country today this great nation will endure as it has endured will revive and will prosper so first of all let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself nameless unreasoning unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance in every dark hour of our national life a leadership of frankness and vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves which is essential to victory i am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days you see he captured it in that the famous quote is I, I he says I, I firmly believe that the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself but what he says afterwards he said it's nameless it's unreasoning it's unjustified terror and it paralyzes us it, I, I, I think if there's one thing that some of you need to consider before you would take communion this morning have you been paralyzed to the point that you can scarcely utter a word it's unreasonable you don't know where it comes from and it looks like this it's in, in, in a pastoral setting or a, a counseling setting is i don't know i don't know why i can i can't i can't share with my spouse i can't even talk i can't even talk about jesus with my children i, I can't it just doesn't come out of me I, and well why I, I i just don't know i can't tell you well maybe this is it maybe there's an unreasonable fear the the thing that you need to be the most concerned about is fear itself because there's something anchored into what he says he said don't do not be afraid do not be afraid and he's nerving your arm for unknowable things and some of the things then, then he says be faithful unto death and you're thinking oh great but would you really want to know because some of you have the cancer now some of you have loved ones that haven't come home Some of you aren't getting pregnant. Some of you are losing children. Some of you have had your car hit and they run. You you've had all of those things, but his fear began to terrorize you. See Roosevelt knew it. He says if that gets a hold of you, we're done. And it's time for the church of Jesus to stop letting it rule us. It's time that we become courageous again. And uh, I I I used to make comments about men being girls. I I I said it quite often that it, you're acting like a teenage girl. And my older sister confronted me because she said some of us girls aren't so bad. And she was right. I had to agree with her and I had to repent of of talking like that. But it doesn't matter whether you're a girl or a man. You can be a bad girl and a bad man. So why don't you be a good one? You see he's writing something in specific instruction and is finding people out because they're they they go to bed every night thinking about something. They wake up every morning thinking about something. They commit themselves to accomplish things every single day and he's saying don't let fear be there. But be faithful. Even if it's under death, be faithful. And there's many of you in this room that have begun to trust him like that. And you're finding that no matter where you go, he's there. Whenever you open your mouth, it's not as if you don't have to try, but you 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 because you were so concerned, you became diligent to prepare. And now you actually have answers for people. 
You, 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 can, you, you can explain things to them because I, I, I think when you pull back, it's kind of like what Keller says. There's defeater beliefs out there that are prevailing and people tend to gravitate towards those defeater beliefs. Figure out how to identify those and speak to those and you can talk to just about anyone. You don't have to be the Bible answer man. But the fact is fear, unreasonable fear, has gripped you with terror. And you don't believe it'll work. Well, if you don't believe it's going to work, how in the world do you expect anybody else to believe you? I think there's a lot of reason behind what he's saying this morning. A lot of reason of what he said. What does it look like when a Christian is gripped by fear? Well, it might look just like the person who turns tail and runs, just keeps their mouth shut. But it, it oftentimes looks far uglier than that because it can look like insecurity and harshness. It looks like people that when you actually start talking about something in just a normal way, people are asking you discussions about what you, believe, what you think, and all of a sudden you get really emotional and bombastic and you say something that you, you could drive a truck through your, through your mouth besides the foot that's there. It is just because you don't know what you're doing. And it, you, fear can manifest itself in a whole bunch of different ways rather than just silence. The insecurity and the, the bombastic, irrational responses that come from Christians are just indicative of fear. It's just the same thing. Now, let me show you the warning, and then we're, we're almost done here. The warning in verse 10. It says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That for the purpose that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Let me start with the end. Nobody knows exactly the ten days. It was way more than ten days. So I think that he's referring to something that's longer than a week. It's a season of time that they were going to really go through some trials. And what he says in verse 10, the warning is he said, Behold, which is a call to attention typically, or pay attention, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. Now, I, I wonder what that would actually look like. Now, I've been to countries where people get thrown into prison. Some of you have. And when they get thrown into prison, not for bad, doing bad, but they get thrown into prison because of their faith, that does something else. It tends to create a stiffer peak. In other words, it's like a watershed. And if you're standing on the fence, you're going to go one of two ways. You're going to become more faithful or you're going to quit. But you see, no one knows now because you're not getting arrested, at least not now. But let some of your friends be thrown into jail. Let them be afflicted and persecuted because of what you believe. And it's only going to be one of two things because it gets steeper. The slope, either way, gets steeper. And it's going to move you in or it's going to completely move you out. He says, I warn you, you better watch. And so there's the warning. Now, what I like about this, that again, we don't hear oftentimes, is that there's nothing Pollyannish about this. Jesus isn't saying, oh, it's going to be okay. I can't tell you how many times I've sat into a, you know, an emergency room or even in a funeral home. And it seems like a lot of pastors and other Christians think that it's always acceptable to say it's going to be okay. And sometimes I don't think we have a right. And I think we need to question whether we've ever felt the pressure to tell people it's okay. Jesus isn't saying it's okay. He says you need to brace yourself. Watch because it's coming. Some of you are going to jail. And it's going to be hard for a few weeks.
for a while. And so the warning is very clear, nothing Pollyannish in that. And it, it, it causes us to question, what did it take you to get through your last crisis? I don't care if you're a Christian or not. What got you through it? Now, I, I, I can tell you that I've gone through things in my life that some of them are fairly hard, and some of them are probably not as hard as some of the things that you've that you face, but it, to some degree it's kind of relative. You know, I lost an eye when I was 11. My brother was killed a few years ago. Those were, those were hard things. But what was it that took, got you through? Because I, every time I hear this, the top of my head almost blows off when it says time heals all wounds. Time doesn't heal anything. Now what's true to say is the things that have to take place to heal you usually take some time to happen. But that's not time. Those are those things which takes time. And so I want you to think, what did it take to get through it? Was it you finally getting back to kind of a level of equilibrium with your friends to where they quit abandoning you and they came around? They treated you like the plague for a while because you were sick and they didn't want to get it? What was it? There's something that got you through it. Jesus here is asserting himself that they need to hang on to him. And that'll get them through it. Now, that brings us to this last thing, the promise. Now, in the promise, in each of the messages, you find it's kind of, uh, kind of interesting because there's a promise that is uniquely given to that group of people in that city. And then there's this, this broader, this... Uh, when, when he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, that pertains to all the churches. So in one sense, there are seven churches that pertain to every, seven promises rather, that pertain to all of them. But the first part of the promise, he says, be faithful even unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That was just a sperma. He said, don't quit on me and you'll be glad you didn't. Hang with it. Now, Mahatma Gandhi was a person familiar with trial, a lot of it. And he wrote something that's very interesting that pertains to this because Jesus is basically saying, be faithful unto death and I'll trade you. You'll die and I'll give you a crown of life. Gandhi said this. He said, when it comes to adversity, he said, first they ignore you. They pretend like you're not even there. He says, then they ridicule you. They start paying attention and they slander you. He said, then they fight you, and then you win. Then you win. And I think many of us need to see that wherever we are in that process, where it's people just ignoring you, or people actually starting to refute you, or slander you, or people actually starting to fight you, but you're getting closer to winning all the time. Now, what is he really getting at? And the thing I want to leave you with is the clearest thing of all. We started in the beginning saying... Well, if Christianity is such a good system of truth, why isn't it working? And I, I think it's because so few of us are willing to be un, unwavering in our faith. There's something about it that gets us to a point where we, we kind of pucker up and then we let it go. And we hope nobody sees us. But the very definition of faith is taken from Hebrews 11 and verse 1 is, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if you're a non-believer or even an atheist in this room, you have to admit that you've got a whole bunch of faith assumptions. And faith assumptions are things that you don't know. You don't know for sure, but there's a theory out there. There's a, there's a chip set that you can choose from. 
And you, you've decided to believe something, and it's not universally held, it can't be proven empirically, but nonetheless you've chosen to put your weight down on it. And for some of you it's evolution, for some of you it might be the big, big bang that now explains a creation with no God in it. But you see, you've got them, you've got those faith assumptions in there. Now, would you be willing to die for them? When those faith assumptions are all exposed to you, would you be willing to say that this theory about the big gate bang, I, I, I know it's just a theory because no one was there, they didn't see it, they're just speculating about it now, but that's the one that I would die for. There's something about what Jesus is saying here that says it's worth dying for. Now, how, how seriously do you hold your convictions? Is there anything in the world that you would die for? I imagine there's some of you parents in here that if someone came in and a group of thugs broke into your home, you'd probably do everything you can, maybe even unto dying, to save your children. There's some of you in this room that, that if your sister was screaming out of a room and the building was full of fire, you might run in and get them. But I believe there's a whole bunch of us in this room that when it comes to those faith assumptions, we would actually turn and run before we die. Now, he's saying something about a different kind of faith than many of us have. It's a faith that will last even unto death. And he says, in the end, the crown of life that you get will make it all worthwhile. Is that your faith? Or is this a game on Sunday? You see, they were cut out of a different cloth than us because they knew that they were facing things. I, I've seen it in China. I've seen it in Korea, where if you converted to Christianity, your family disowned you. And you didn't do that lightly. Some of us got baptized lightly. Some of us claim to know Jesus lightly. Some of us claim to have a belief that we don't read the Bible, we don't go to churches that teach us much, we don't try to figure out our faith because we know Jesus because we prayed a prayer a long time ago, but we know it lightly. He's saying, stick with me, and I'll be there for you. That's a different kind of faith. I hope that will be the consideration of your prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, I, I would ask that, that we might be able to examine this. That I, I, think, I think it's possible that the majority of people in this room can't say that they would die for, for very much at all. I think it's true to say that, and I know a lot of people might just say, well, we're not the same generation as the 1930s where you had a strong work ethic and you had, you had kind of a, a constitution in, in the American heart. It was cut out of a cloth that's different than now. I, I, I really don't subscribe to that. I tend to think that we're a bunch of people that have come to learn that we really don't have to be serious about very much. And because of that, we can still make stuff work. We can always cover our bets and we can always come out okay in the end. But maybe you didn't make us that way at all. Maybe it's time that we admit that it's not really working in this, this fanciful idea of marriage that now is, is ending dismally for one out of every two couples that walk up an aisle and stand up and promise to love each other. One out of two of them don't make it now, and, and one out of two of the remaining ones are unhappy. There's something about the way we understand things that seems to be broken. And if you're a God that is alive then you can talk to us today. Perhaps not in an audible voice or some vision, but just in a deep conviction that emerges within our, our very person, something that nobody else knows but us.
And I ask that, I ask that, that would be the thing you would do right now. Some of these people would examine what they would live for and what they would die for. And they would consider that here Jesus is setting a bunch of Christians up like bowling pins. They're going to get knocked down. And it's coming soon. But he says you need to be faithful even unto death. I think some of us would flinch. But I, I, I pray this morning that you would break in and cause us to, say, to take things maybe a little bit more seriously. That we might experience a few of those Bible studies and those groups that actually mean something instead of just passing our time. And so we commit these moments to you. We just ask that you would use them for our benefit and your glory. And we commit these things to you in Jesus' good name. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McHenry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.